Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California played a sizable role in the UN Climate Conference, or COP28, which ended in Dubai yesterday, touting our investments in renewable energy and conservation, and joining other subnational governments, states, provinces, cities, in committing to reduce methane emissions. We'll take a closer look at what COP28 accomplished, including an agreement among nations to transition away from fossil fuels and reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. We'll also hear where you think it fell short in addressing the climate crisis. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Did the UN Climate Conference, or COP28, that ended yesterday do anything to address the climate change-related issues Californians worry about, like our megafires, drought, floods, or extreme heat? California played a big role at the conference in Dubai as both a model of climate policy and a student of innovative ways other nations and states are reducing carbon emissions. We'll talk with California's Natural Resources Secretary Wade Crowfoot about the international commitments we made. But first, we'll hear about the climate conference's main accomplishments and controversies with Vijay Vaidiswaran, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. Welcome, Vijay. Good to be with you, Mina. So, so Vijay, first tell me what the mood and energy at the conference was like, because as you reported, there was a high level of distrust going into it. It was hosted by one of the world's biggest oil producers and led by the head of the UAE's state-owned oil company. So there was some good reason. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, I've been to a number of these COP conferences, as they're called, they're the big UN gathering on climate change once a year. And uh, there was a particularly high level of animosity and distrust amongst uh, the delegates. And bear in mind, this is the leading climate conference. And so you have a lot of people who care very passionately and understandably about climate change. And they're traveling to a country that's an OPEC producer. The president of the organization that's running this, the COP secretariat, is also the head of the national oil company, uh, which is uh, one of the world's biggest oil producers. So there are a lot of people who are convinced that the fix is in for big oil, basically, that this is going to be a, an enormous greenwashing exercise um, or that the COP itself might fall apart. And it has done. Uh, 20 years ago, I was in the Netherlands uh, at a conference where the American negotiator had a pie thrown in his face when I was standing near him. And the U.S. 
was drummed out of the treaty, basically, the Kyoto Protocol, as it was called. And so things could have gone very horribly wrong. I'm pleased to report that things were a little bit better than that. Yeah. And actually, let's hear a clip of COP28 President Sultan al-Jaber at the closing ceremonies talking about how things didn't fall apart, or at least trying to summarize what the conference did accomplish. Together, we have confronted realities and we have set the world in the right direction. We have given it a robust action plan to keep 1.5 within reach. It is a plan that is led by the science. It is a balanced plan that tackles emissions, bridges the gap on adaptation, reimagines global finance, and delivers on loss and damage. So, Vijay, let's dig into some of the things uh, that he's talking about here. First, tell us about the agreement around fossil fuels and carbon emission that was reached among the nearly 200 nations present. What were some of the main elements? Sure. And just to level set a little bit, I mean, let's keep in mind, people have strange ideas about what a UN treaty can do, right? So what was on the table was never a solution to the global climate crisis, uh, even though that is what is the aspiration. Any deal struck at the United Nations has to have the agreement of all members, in this case, something like 200 countries who are signatories to the COP treaty. And it also has no enforcement mechanism, right? right? That's the job of national governments, like our federal government in Washington, as well as, of course, the state government in California. Subnational governments can impose regulations and punishments and, and uh, grant subsidies and so on. The UN can't do any of those things. So in a sense, this is a, an expression of intent. It has important uh, value in signaling the direction of change. Um, but it, in, it, in and of itself, it's asking too much for the United Nations to save the planet uh, through a climate treaty. So having said that, uh, the really big debate was indeed about the future for fossil fuels. And, there, and this has been true for a number of COPs. This wasn't the first time we saw this last year in Egypt and, and very notably two years ago in Scotland, which hosted the COP. Uh, there were huge disruptions and rows. And ultimately, the the president of that COP was shedding a tear uh, at the press conference because they couldn't achieve an agreement to get rid of fossil fuels eventually mm -hmm. in one way or another. The deal fell apart because in that case, India objected. And India is a country that used a lot of coal and they didn't want to see it taken off the table. And so these are the sort of the dynamics that you have where when you need to have so many, uh, almost all the countries in the world agree to a plan for the future, they vote their self-interest. And among them are countries like China and India that use a lot of coal, South Africa, Indonesia. There are countries like the OPEC countries, of course, who make their money from selling oil and gas. Let's not forget the U.S. is the world's biggest oil producer yes. at this time. So we also have a, a dog in this fight to some degree, although the U.S. negotiators were arguing for tougher language, not weaker, along with the Europeans. And so those are the kinds of backroom dealings, negotiations that were going on well into the late hours of the last few days on could the world come together at the UN at least to express an intent to move off of fossil fuels? And in the end, we did. The, the agreement does call for the world to move away from fossil fuels for the very first time that has been expressed in any of these COP treaties or the 28 years that um, the negotiators have gotten together. Yeah, I think the language was transition away, so move away. So what exactly does that mean? Because as I read it, the 
language that was in there sort of in previous iterations was phase out fossil fuels, which does feel a little more definitive, like it's a shift that will ultimately be completed, whereas transition away kind of feels like it's a little more open-ended or, or maybe feels vulnerable to interpretation. So the way I look at this is, um, you know, enormous amounts of blood was spilt in the hallways at the Expo Center in Dubai over um, these words. And it's a bit like mm. how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, right? <laughs> Let, let's be honest. This body does not have the power to make things happen. There's a lot of magical thinking that happens in the corridors of these UN negotiations. And so many, many people were anguished that it wasn't a phase out or a phase down. Uh, in reality, the global energy system relies on fossil fuels for 80% of the energy today. Now, that's an ugly, unpleasant fact for those of us who take climate change very seriously and want to see dramatic action, but that's that's the reality. And that was about the same ratio 25 years ago, to be honest. So all of the growth in wind and solar and batteries and EVs that are to be applauded, and which you know we certainly championed on the pages yes. of The Economist, have been to supply the growth in energy consumption. The baseline is still 80% fossil. So uh, kind of a, a wishful thinking saying, let's get rid of fossil fuels tomorrow. You can say that, but it ain't going to happen. And especially when you take account of the fact that sub-Saharan Africa has barely begun to develop. India is on an industrialization path. And, and these are countries that contributed very little of the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. And they're telling the rich world, wait, you got rich polluting and now you're telling us we can't use energy to grow? And so there is a dimension there that's not just the big oil, terrible, you know, sort of greedy types against the virtuous greens. That's a, a, a simple-minded way to look at what was going on. There were multiple poles here, multiple tensions, and including Europe, for example, very green, but also more reliant on coal this year than last because of the Russian gas crisis, for example. And so it's a more complex picture yeah. than that. Well, well, let me ask you about the agreement to be carbon neutral by 2050, because it sounded like it was really focused at least in part on trying to do this not just by you know reducing emissions and focusing on our consumption but also about carbon capture and storage and we have learned in the US that carbon capture is not an easy thing to do you're quite right that there is another dimension of this sort of struggle had to do with um abatement. And that's the, the term of art that's used for a range of technologies that are used to uh, take carbon out of the air, to store it underground. In the case of carbon capture and sequestration, there's direct air capture technologies. There's use of biomass. There's a range of technologies that are coming up. Together, they're called uh, carbon dioxide removal technologies. And th they're hugely controversial, in part because people who are of an environmental mindset see this as a as a kind of a greenwashing by the fossil fuel industry that if we allow any of these technologies to be given official permission in this treaty it will be like a get out of jail free card for the fossil fuel industry that that's a very dominant view among many of those who are at cop if we actually look and see what the un's own climate scientists an intergovernmental panel known as the ipcc scientific panel uh you know the world authority on climate science what they have said is that in the second half of this century we need negative emissions technologies at scale, meaning we have done such a terrible job the last couple of decades in reining in greenhouse gases and cutting our use of fossil fuels that we're probably going to overshoot 
what's safe for the climate and for, for humanity on this earth. And we're going to need a bunch of technologies to take that excess greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere. And we're going to need them to be scaled up in the next couple of decades. So please get to work. That's what the scientists have said in their official declarations and their scientific reports. We need negative emissions technologies. So being against them is to be against actually what the authoritative body on science says. It's fair to pick on any individual oil company saying, look, you know, you doing, you know, funding this, are you really serious? Are you greenwashing? I'm, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm skeptical about everybody. Uh, <laughs> but to, to be against the concept of negative, emiss negative emissions technologies, uh, I think is unscientific and that's, that's demonstrable. So what this treaty actually agreed to is consistent with the science. We need to have net zero emissions. Net zero means not everything can be removed, right? There are some sectors that are hard to abate, steel, cement, some very heavy industry that uh, where it's not easy to electrify, for example. We might need to develop new kinds of fuels uh, like hydrogen or other clean fuels that can burn at a very high temperature. That's not easy to do with just windmills and Teslas, right? We can get most of the way with the stuff that's easier to do, but we need to invent some stuff and we need to scale some forms of technologies that we don't have ready at scale yet. And ultimately, we're probably going to need some technologies for removing excess emissions because we should have done better. We, we're behind in this race. And that's really the reason why we need those technologies. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier that, you know, what has been agreed to is not a legally binding one and, and that, you know, the importance is in signaling what it is that we're going to do. But then what is the value of this, right? If you have something as important as the global climate crisis, is this the venue that really can bring at least the globe together. I just want to know, like, what is the value, and we're coming up on a break, but of this, if if you were to respond to the very skeptical or cynical person <laughs> about the value sure. of climate. It, it is easy to be skeptical about anything the UN does generally, right? Uh, but in particular on climate, uh, because it doesn't have enforcement mechanisms. But I've been a stout defender of this UN process over the many years for the following reason. Climate change is the most global of all problems that confront humanity, and it's worse than just being global and difficult. It's intergenerational, right? Politicians have to make decisions today for a problem that may be worse for our children or grandchildren or that may affect people in distant countries that don't even vote in our elections. And so it takes more than normally uh, one country or one region can do. We need to come together on a concerted plan. The UN is the right forum for this. That's the reason to go there every year, bang our heads together, try to get some agreement. And it has worked once in a while, as we saw in Paris, which is a breakthrough accord in 2015. Yes. Well, more on COP28 after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
While President Biden did not attend the U.N. Climate Conference, California made quite a showing at COP28. And we're talking with Vijay Vaidiswaran, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist, all about it. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions about what happened at COP28? What do you think of these big conferences? Do they give you hope? Have you found them to be effective? Have you attended? What did you think? What is the climate issue that you worry about most? And what would you like to know about how it was addressed at COP? You can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. And you can always call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. I'd like to bring into the conversation now California's Natural Resources Secretary, Wade Crowfoot. Secretary Crowfoot, welcome to Forum. Good to be with you, Mina. Well, really glad to have you. You were part of the California delegation that attended COP. Tell me about the key goals that California had in terms of being there and why it was important for the state to be there, because a lot of us think about this as a meeting of countries. Yeah, well, California is clearly on the front lines of climate change, and Californians know it. Wildfire, drought, floods, extreme heat sea level rise. So it's critically important that we lead the world combating climate change. And as Vijay pointed out, the UN convening that takes place every year is really important because this is a problem that's global in nature. And every country in the world needs to see every other country leaning into this transition. And so California needs to be there because Californians expect us to be leaders on climate change. And so we're there to push for faster action, for more aggressive action, but also to share California's story, because we are a really important proof point of what we can do to combat climate change. You mean the fact that we were able to grow our economy while we were also reducing greenhouse gas emissions, at least for a time? Absolutely. So California, believe it or not, is the fifth largest economy in the world. We have a legally mandated target to achieve net zero or carbon neutrality in two decades, in 2045. We have a legally mandated, which means a state law, for 100% clean energy. We have an economy-wide roadmap to achieve those targets, which we call the scoping plan. And we're putting in place programs, we have in place programs that are actually reducing carbon pollution, whether it's rebates for electric vehicles or solar roofs uh, or energy efficiency or a mandate we have on utilities to procure more and more energy via renewables. And it's working. So last year, almost 60% of the electricity across California that was generated was generated from carbon-free sources. Uh, Over a quarter of new vehicle sales uh, in this last quarter were uh, electric vehicles, zero-emission vehicles. So California demonstrates that we can, that economies across the world can set these aggressive targets and make progress towards meeting them. Yeah. A couple months ago, though, the California Energy Commission's preliminary findings, at least, said that California's greenhouse gas emissions rose in 2022 instead of decreasing as expected. I I was just really curious what your reaction was to that finding and why that happened. Well, look, this. Yeah, absolutely. This transition is not easy and it's complicated. And of course, you know, the processes that we have, the fossil fuel that we use has generated you know, economic growth for the last 100 years. And so this is a transition that's going to take time. Um, So we will see upticks uh, uh, occasionally in terms of emissions in certain sectors. But overall, the trend is clear, which is we are reducing emissions and we will meet those legally mandated targets uh, as a result of this roadmap that we have in place. 
So, Vijay, I want to ask you about methane, because that was a big topic of conversation at COP and one for California as well. Can you just first remind us why methane is such an important greenhouse gas to address? Absolutely, Mina. And, and this is one of the important outcomes from this COP as well. So I'm glad we're discussing it. Um, now everyone knows carbon dioxide is the main greenhouse gas. We're kind of familiar with that. Uh, but the neglected greenhouse gas is methane. Methane is a a natural emission that obviously uh, comes from agriculture, from burping cows, we know that, but it's also an industrial gas, right? And it's uh, uh, the industry, in particular, the oil and gas industry in its upstream uh, methods for making and producing and transporting oil and gas to markets releases a lot of methane. The reason methane matters is that it's a very potent gas, but 80 times or more uh, powerful than carbon dioxide in trapping heat even though it lives only 10 to 15 years. It's much shorter lived. CO2 lives in the air for centuries. So it's the it's the right number one preoccupation. But this is a really huge short-term victory. If we can reduce the emissions of methane, we can get a quick win that contributes a lot of the warming that we see currently. And um, that might buy us a decade in which we can dramatically accelerate a lot of the other actions that we're hoping to do to take on CO2. So, so then, Secretary Crowfoot, California signed on to the Subnational Methane Action Coalition. What does that mean? How is California planning to act on methane? Yeah, great question. So let me just break down what it means to be a, a subnational government. So, uh, you know, states, provinces, cities are all really important towards meeting our climate goals. They're not the ones in the room uh, in the UN uh, negotiating these treaties. So states like California use our participation at the, at the COP um, to partner with other subnational governments to say, hey, we're stepping up with uh, tangible uh, targets that we want to be held accountable for. And in California, we've set a target to reduce methane, that super pollutant that VJ just explained, 40 percent uh, in the next six years by 2030. And we think it's critically important that other subnational governments do the same. So California, our colleagues at the California Air Resources Board, are spearheading this coalition across the world of states, provinces, and cities that are making similar targets for methane reduction and taking action. And so uh, earlier this, uh, this fall when we were in New York with when Governor Newsom addressed the UN on the climate crisis, we announced that we had seven initial members, large governments. Uh, and then at COP, we were able to uh, explain that now we have 15 governments that are leaning in with uh, tangible, uh, accountable targets for methane reduction. And we think that's ultimately important to implement the targets that are being negotiated through the U.N. Yeah, I mean, it's where the rubber hits the road, essentially. Well, let me read a couple of listener comments that are coming in. And again, feel free to ask your questions. Tell us what you think of these kinds of big conferences or if you've attended a COP or the issues that you worry about and and want to know how they were addressed. The listener writes, I just want to express appreciation to Vijay for framing the complexity of how the UN, COP28, and other entities actually work. I think the apocalyptic nature of the issues we're facing, like climate change, AI, and growing inequality, often makes us everyday people want to approach these items from a black and white lens. The reality is that society, governments, and industries are all so much more complicated, and success comes slowly through collaborative conversations on the international, national, and local levels that builds coalitions and changes culture and society. Wow. Let me go to Emmett in Davis. Emmett, you are on. Hi, good morning. I've uh, been keeping up with the headlines and, you know, a lot of it focuses on the complexity that VJ's uh, explained to us. 
and a lot of the, the backroom arguments that took place at the conference. But I'm wondering if there were any corporations or NGOs that stood out for their messaging or made any kind of declarations, especially on the innovation side, that we should perhaps keep an eye on to make sure that uh, they get the recognition that they deserve. Hmm. Emmett, thanks. Vijay? Uh, uh, really, everyone uh, in the environmental world and in the climate tech innovation world turned up. There were 100,000 or so people that turned up. Um, and so it's it's hard to single out any. But I, I would say there is a, a strong presence from uh, climate tech startups, uh, among others, not to single out one, but Bill Gates and his breakthrough energy ventures. Uh, they turned up with a lot of their startup companies that are working on what's called hard tech. That is stuff that doesn't pay back within a venture capital cycle of a few years, but might take 10 or 20 years to do with deep decarbonization. So a number of their startup companies were there, which was interesting to see as potential solutions five or 10 or 15 years down the road. Uh, you also had on the methane deal, uh, a couple of environmental groups, uh, in particular environmental defense from the United States, playing a key role uh, in getting some of those recalcitrant big oil companies on board. And I think there, this was not an official outcome of the COP, meaning it wasn't signed off by 198 countries. Uh, this was a side deal. And it did not look very promising to get a, an oil and gas deal because many of the national oil companies, for example, who are the ones that actually contribute most of the methane emissions from their operations. It's not the Chevron or Shell or Exxon that we're familiar with that are Western companies that are the, the biggest culprits, although they also emit. Um, we were able to see with the kind of goading and, and sort of a group uh, peer pressure that was applied, about 50 of the world's biggest emitters from the oil and gas sector agreed to slash their methane emissions by 80 to 90% by 2030, that is a concrete target with a concrete deadline with third-party verification. And in this case, uh, EDF, the environmental group, is putting up a satellite in a couple of months specifically to monitor them, to keep them honest, uh, to watch from the sky so there's no place left to hide. And of course, the US EPA announced very tough new rules on oil and gas methane emissions at COP. Administrator Regan was there. So we see both the stick and the carrot can come together. And that's one of the reasons these UN events is worthwhile is that it can provide a platform for coalitions of the willing like this. Yeah, though I did hear some criticism, Secretary Crowfoot, that the methane discussion did not focus enough on the food we eat, namely our meat production, maybe think about California and ag. So your your reaction to that criticism? Well, first, I'd just say that, you know, non-governmental organizations, including environmental groups, are very present at COP. And when I was walking into the convening each day, we saw protests, we saw groups, you know, applying pressure to these negotiators. You read a lot about the pressure on the United Arab Emirates to deliver something meaningful on, on uh, fossil fuels. So uh, I want to just shout out the importance of these civil society organizations for holding all of us in government accountable. And I want to identify, there was one effort that, I, uh, that comes out of this uh, civil society movement that I was really impressed by, and that was this organization called Climate Trace. And this is something that, uh, that former Vice President Gore has been championing, was championing a cop. It's essentially independent greenhouse gas emissions tracking. So somebody can just Google Climate Trace and look at today um, where the greenhouse gases are being emitted around the world. And as Vijay said, that's really important to maintain accountability for uh, polluters. Um, so as it relates to methane and our, our food systems, yeah, we have work to do there. I mean, methane, you know, key sources are, are the industrial processes, 
um, as well as agriculture and waste. And uh, on our agricultural, um, you know, sort of production, um, we are working to with farmers and producers to reduce methane, but there's a lot of work we need to do. Likewise, waste, you know, organic waste that ends up in landfills is a huge source of, of methane. Um, if we can divert that, uh, we can create actually composting that we can get back in the soil to increase the, the carbon sequestration in our, fo- our soils and water retention. So we're the first to say in California, we have a lot of work to do on methane. And that's why we have set such an ambitious target to hold ourselves accountable to make progress. Wade Grover, the Secretary of California's Natural Resources Agency. Vijay Vaidiswaran is Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. They both attended COP28, and we're learning about it from them and hearing your questions and thoughts. Let me go to caller Chris in San Jose. Chris, you're on. Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah, I wanted to just talk about the optics uh, a bit. Um, you know, it's, 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 I don't think it's uh, passed on anybody that there are uh, contingents from governments, that there are companies, that there are others flying in from all around the world uh, for these, uh, these, these COP meetings using a tremendous uh, amount of uh, carbon uh, to get there. It's horrible, horrible optics. Um, I'm a former uh, foreign service officer with the U.S. government. I now work in tech and ESG. I'm familiar with what goes into these global convenings, the main events, the side events. This can all be done remotely. Um, climate events have to lead the way. No one is going to take these. A lot of people are not going to take these efforts seriously. You're not going to follow these things unless they see the climate leaders doing what they can to reduce their carbon footprints themselves. And these meetings can happen remotely and they should happen remotely, Mm. starting with the COP meetings, including Climate Week events as well. Well, Chris, thanks. I'd love to get Wade Crowfoot's response to that as someone who was there and the incredible carbon footprint that Chris is mentioning that these conferences have. Can this be done remotely based on your experience there? Should this be done remotely? Can the things that you accomplished have happened without having to be in the same room with people? Well, look, first I'll acknowledge there is a carbon footprint to this global travel. It takes 16 hours to travel from California to Dubai. And of course, that's burning fossil fuel. And so we have to be thoughtful of our carbon footprint and we can't engage in frivolous travel. Uh, this can't just be sort of a, uh, a cottage industry of folks that travel around the world simply talking to each other about climate change. That being said, you know, this annual convening, from my perspective, is really important because there is a, there is a human dimension of people getting in the room and actually the, the sort of the pressure that gets put on them to actually make decisions and make progress. Um, the relationships that develop that allow for breakthroughs, it's just not possible uh, on, uh, you know, sort of the world's largest Zoom meeting. I don't even know how you would do that in terms of a global negotiations with 198 countries. Um, so, yes, we should do more of our work virtually. We should maximize that. But there are times and places on these sort of wicked global problems like climate change when getting leaders together in person is essential. And I've, I've witnessed these breakthroughs uh, at the COP, so I do think they remain essential to actually take place in person. Secretary Crowfoot, California listed its own climate goals independent of the U.S. on the official U.N. Registry of Government's climate commitments. Why did it do that? Why did we do that? Why does it matter to do that? It's critically important to show the world that, that, that America, the United States, is is all in on fighting climate change and will remain all in. And, you know, when President Trump was elected several years ago, 
uh, and he quickly uh, tried to get the United States out of its commitment that was made in Paris in 2015. About half of American states stepped up and created an alliance called the U.S. Climate Alliance, representing about 55 percent of the population and 60 percent of our GDP. And we are states with binding climate targets and durable sort of climate commitments. And that was really important to show the world that America was in. Because if the United States is not going to lead, is not going to lean in and make this transition, how can we ask other countries to do that? And so California, by virtue of its size, its influence around the world, but its, its portion of the American economy, it's really important that we demonstrate how aggressive that we're being. The Biden-Harris administration has been incredible on climate change. We have more federal funding for this transition than we've ever had. And we need states to be this durable source of progress. So as we change uh, administrations um, uh, and as we change sort of federal leadership, the states maintain that commitment. Well, well, Vijay, what I think Secretary Covid is alluding to is that a Trump presidency could undercut California's climate goals and by extension, our national goals. We're in there saying that we're going to do all these things and trying to get other nations to commit to all these things. How much did the prospect of a second Trump presidency weigh on the conference and maybe even undercut what the U.S. was trying to say? Everyone that was there is aware of Donald Trump, right? It may seem like uh, national politics to us, but the world watches what happens in American presidential politics. So uh, he was he was certainly a specter at the feast hovering over uh, some of the negotiations. But the American government that turned up um, uh, led by John Kerry and yes. John Podesta and others um, was a very different one, certainly, than Trump, in the sense that um, unlike two years ago at Glasgow, another big summit, um, the climate summit, the U.S. has passed the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and the Chips and Science Act, I mean, a triple whammy of legislation that dramatically supports and increases our efforts on climate and clean technologies. So we had a lot of credibility at the table. Uh, and I would argue that, um, you know, sh should there be a Trump presidency, almost certainly he will act to pull us out of the, the International Climate Treaty as he did last time. But the benefits of the IRA law overwhelmingly flowed to red states, red counties, and companies and taxpayers in Republican districts. That's been shown in analysis after analysis. So I think that this might be more durable than perhaps President Trump's rhetoric would indicate because the beneficiaries are not gonna allow the, the subsidies to be overturned. Hmm. Vijay Vaiviswaran is Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. Wade Crowfoot is Secretary of California's Natural Resources Agency. You, our listeners, are joining Forum at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on our social channels at KQED Forum, Instagram, our digital community on Discord, and so on. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're hearing about what the U.S. and California did and learned at the U.N.'s major climate conference this year, COP28, the international commitments we signed, including on methane, and how California acted as a leader on renewable energy. We've gotten a couple of comments here on that. This listener tweets, until someone can show Shell and Exxon how they can make even more money on renewables, nothing will happen. The fix is not going to be found in governments. Jane writes, Stanford professor Mark Jacobson argues that with the political will, we could reduce carbon emissions by 80% by 2035 and 100% by 2050 by powering the world with wind, water, and solar. No need for carbon capture and storage or nuclear energy. This is good news indeed. And it's no wonder the fossil fuel industry is fighting this. We addressed some of these things earlier, but I do want to actually ask you, Secretary Crowfoot, about wind. I understand that California joined the Global Offshore Wind Alliance at COP, and uh, I read that its members have collectively agreed to try to build 380 gigawatts of offshore offshore wind energy by 2030. And our state's own goal is 25 gigawatts um, by 2045 from offshore wind. And I was struck by this because KQED's own reporting finds that California is behind on the construction necessary to meet that goal. Can you give us an update? Absolutely. So first of all, let me just share about the promise of offshore wind. So, you know, we have an amazing resource, you know, blowing off the Pacific Ocean into the, you know, west coast of the Americas into California that we haven't yet tapped, and that's offshore wind. And so we're really focused on building that out as part of this transition to 100% clean energy. And what's interesting is, you know, uh, we have a lot of wind that blows onto California at night, uh, which is, of course, when solar is not functioning because solar uh, works when the sun is up. So bringing on that offshore wind is important as we electrify more things like vehicles and uh, electrify homes. Uh, and it's really important that's sort of the, given its profile of, of when it generates electricity. It's complicated because California has a very, a very deep um, area off its coast. So in comparison to areas off the East Coast, this would be deep floating offshore wind. Uh, and that's a fairly new technology. Uh, it is, it is uh, taking place in parts of Europe like Scotland and Denmark, uh, but it's complicated. It also requires significant infrastructure upgrades at our ports. Um, We have worked with the federal government because these uh, these wind farms would be in federal waters. And we've identified one area in the northern part of the state, think Humboldt County, the other in the central part of the state, the central coast, where wind is is most appropriate. And we're working with those regions on port development. We're working with our uh, energy planners on the transmission upgrades to actually bring the electricity off. It's a major undertaking. Um, offshore wind will not uh, manifest or not emerge uh, in the next couple of years. We're really several years off, but we're working very fast to put all of these pieces in place. But I'll acknowledge there's there's complexity, uh, and we are we are working to keep all of these streams of work necessary, such so, so that we can get offshore wind in. Uh, just as soon as possible. So you, several years off, are we also then several years off that 2045 goal potentially? 
No, we are focused on meeting that 2045 goal. And mm-hmm. uh, so offshore wind is a piece of that, but so is battery storage. So battery storage is really important because we have, you know, renewables like solar and wind, but they're intermittent, meaning they don't run all the time. And so California has, has increased by tenfold the amount of battery storage that we have in place that will capture that, that energy uh, produced by solar, for example, for use in the nighttime when, when the sun is in shining. Um, and uh, we consider ourselves a world leader uh, in the expansion of battery storage. And we're working with China and Australia, which are two countries with major coal within their energy portfolio. And one of the areas of promise we can share is how batteries, large batteries, get integrated into the grid so that those countries, as well as California, can transition to 100%. But we are focused like a laser on meeting our 2045 100% clean energy target. Well, Amy writes, why don't more sunny countries implement solar. India relies so much on coal, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Central and South America, and Africa are or have countries that have a lot of sun. Are there plans in place to implement more solar in order to phase out fossil fuel consumption? Are there agencies or organizations within COP granting money to countries to fund these efforts? Vijay, you want to take that? Sure. Um, Here, there's good news and bad news. The good news first, uh, new solar generation is the cheapest unsubsidized form of power generation in the world, bar none, even cheaper than new coal. Unless you're running beat up old coal plants that have been around and paid for, it's gonna be cheaper to build new solar in most places in the world, including India, for example. Um, And there are strong programs and build outs of uh, solar in a number of countries. Uh, India has among the lowest cost solar in the world and the the sector is, is growing quite rapidly. Here's the challenge though. Uh, We have entered into a high interest rate environment the last few years, in part because central banks are fighting inflation. That spike in interest rates has raised the cost of capital for projects, and it disproportionately affects renewable energy, which tends to be very capital intensive, meaning you you buy the kit up front and the fuel is free, right, in effect, for wind and solar. That's different than oil and gas projects. And so uh, it has disproportionately hurt renewable energy. And we've seen the troubles in the offshore sector in the East Coast, for example, with uh, cancellations of some projects. The supply chains are uh, very difficult for a new industry that's taking off. And the deglobalization trend where we're doing a lot of things that are breaking our relations with China, which is a supplier for a lot of vital equipment, is also hurting this industry. So there are some headwinds in the short term that I hope can be overcome. The long-term outlook is definitely bright, but we do have some short-term headwinds. Hmm. Well, we are talking with Vijay Vaidiswaran and Secretary Wade Crowfoot of California's Natural Resources Agency. Vijay's with The Economist. You are sharing your questions about what happened at COP, your thoughts on the effectiveness of these kinds of big conferences, the climate issues that you're concerned about and that you want to know how they were addressed at COP. And also, if you are feeling optimism, we'd love to hear that too about progress that's being made against climate change. Ron writes, the total amount of emissions for one COP meeting is tiny compared to the reductions that are possible due to the meeting. And let me go to caller Cara in Pacifica. Cara, you're on. Hi. Regardless of what agreements are made, it seems to me that we need to have two things, both a global economic system that's not based on eternal growth, (laughs) that has limits, and that we need a spiritual, emotional, a social relationship of value with the rest of life on Earth, hmm. not only humans in other countries, but also all of other life. 
And that seems necessary with before any change can really happen or effective change. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, Secretary Crawford, did you see any evidence of that at COP? You know, the, I mean, both really, really important points. And, you know, I do think we are experiencing a paradigm shift. And I don't know if it's exactly what Kara, you know, sort of how she describes it. But, you know, 20 years ago, there was much more of a global debate about just how serious climate change is. And now that debate, uh, in, at least in the global context, uh, has dissolved, vanished. Everybody understands this is an existential crisis and we have to we have to do everything necessary. My big critique is that there's that recognition, glass half full, but the glass half empty is that we're not moving fast enough um, to address the acceleration of climate change. I do think there was an interesting part of the conversation at COP, which was about the global financial system, and that is the underinvestment in the, uh, in the global south. So your previous caller talked about the areas with uh, a lot of solar resource. A lot of those areas are in the global south. But we have a global economic system that doesn't invest in those places. And so in many respects, the areas that are sort of the most vulnerable to climate disruption or climate chaos uh, that also have remarkable potential for solutions aren't getting the investment. And African leaders recently held a a climate summit in Africa to really make the case that Africa um, is a a solution set uh, for climate change if the world uh, makes its investment there. So I was really interested, and this is not my area of expertise, but to but to be present for a lot of conversations from, you know, poorer nations to say, hey, this global this global economic system does have to shift, um, and we have to invest in underinvested places, poor countries, developing countries, if we're going to actually achieve, you know, what we need to on climate change. Yes, and often countries that are already feeling the incredible impacts of climate change in significant ways. Vijay, we're talking about investments with Secretary Crowfoot, but can you also just talk about any progress that was made on the loss and damage fund, this idea that uh, wealthy nations need to help the most vulnerable repair the damage from climate change? Sure. Uh, This is actually one of the um, surprises that came out of the last summit, which was held in Egypt a year ago, uh, unexpectedly, the, uh, at the last minute, the negotiators agreed to set up a loss and damage fund uh, that, in effect, acknowledges that rich countries went first, industrialized, contributed to climate change the most, and that they should help developing countries that are suffering in coming years, uh, already suffering today, really. And in the very first day of the summit, um, we saw that there was a, a surprise announcement of money being put into this fund as well. The Europeans led the way. Um, so that was sort of a good news coming out at the beginning of the summit. Mm-hmm. But again, I, w- I would urge us to look at the context here, the amount, kinds of money that are going to go into a fund like this. At the moment, something like $700 million has been committed, even if it rises into the billions or even tens of billions of dollars, which is really all that one would expect coming from official government sources. The scale of damages are measured in the trillions in this Mm. coming decade, right? So this is not going to solve the problem. Uh, We're going to need to find ways of doing much more creative financing, both humanitarian assistance 
refugee assistance, but also upfront investments in what's known as resilience, helping make societies resilient to very predictable now, unfortunately, uh, weather-related damages or other kinds of stress, drought and so on, crop failures. And so we did see a variety of interesting announcements. Some of them were from the philanthropies like the Rockefeller or Bezos Fund. There were others that were uh, governmental organizations or UN agencies that deal with agriculture that are investing in these areas. But these are all kind of small amounts of money, but they're important to keep going. We don't yet have a much more ambitious plan, and, and maybe COP is the wrong forum for this, but there is a move to dramatically redo climate finance, and that's going to probably require the World Bank, the IMF, and some of the other international agencies to take more risk, to, to redirect and be more serious about how they commit funds for these purposes in developing countries, because the private sector won't invest and has not historically invested in developing countries at the level needed because they see that the, their risks are higher. And so things like foreign exchange risk, for example, can make a, a clean energy project that would make sense in the US suddenly be out of the money in a developing country or counterparty risk or uh, you know other kinds of fiddly things that bankers and MBAs look at, but that make or break projects. We might need to provide some risk insurance mechanisms, for example, from taxpayer money to help bridge the gap or take a first dollar loss. Meaning if a project goes south, the taxpayer might take the first dollar of that loss. That might be enough money for a Wall Street bank or private equity to come in and support the rest of the project in what's considered a risky emerging market. Uh, and so those are the kinds of innovative finance mechanisms that's been talked about, but we haven't yet cracked the code on. We're talking about the 28th United Nations Climate Conference, the Conference of the Parties, COP28, which ended Wednesday in Dubai. We're looking at what it accomplished and what more work needs to be done. This is a fundraising period for KQED. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. BJ, I'm just curious what role or how protests and protesters were managed at COP28. You know, just by virtue of the fact that this was in the UAE, where protests are effectively illegal, but they're an important voice in terms of pushing for some of the more um, more dramatic or direct change. Uh, you you said it very plainly and simply. Protest is not tolerated in the UAE, right? It's it's an autocratic state, and so you are not allowed to protest. You are not granted a visa if you are suspected of being a potential protester. As a member of the media. Uh, I was only allowed in with media equipment that could not be used outside the official UN area, meaning going around society recording and, and asking ordinary citizens, what do you think about the government or what do you think about the UN, was forbidden uh, at the point of either jailing or ejection from the country, for example. So this is a draconian wow. set of rules that they imposed. Now, within the UN bubble, and there's, again, 100,000 people that are allowed into the two parts of the UN bubble, the official blue zone, and then there's something much bigger called the green zone that's right next to it, um, where the delegates don't go. But it's almost like a trade show with many, many companies and NGOs and other groups setting up their shop. Uh, there were protests. They were small, right? They were measured in the hundreds or dozens of people, not thousands or tens of thousands of people. Uh, but official delegates could feel the pressure for sure from the smaller number of very focused but often high-level protesters, because the leading environmental and human rights and other groups uh, often came in either in their own right uh, or as parts of official delegations from various countries. And so they had the right passes to be able to let their views be heard. Now, let's be clear, this is not um, a street protest of the kind we would expect in a, in a free society, but definitely their presence was known and felt, and I think it did play a role in the final outcome. 
Well, this is Nepala writes, will fossil fuels be needed for the manufacturing of electric vehicles? Huh, Secretary Crowfoot, do you want to take that? That's a good question. So we talk about, you know, phasing down and transitioning beyond fossil fuels. And our roadmap in California called the scoping plan uh, to achieve carbon neutrality or, or net zero by 2045 explains that first and foremost, we have to uh, uh, significantly reduce the use of fossil fuels. And, uh, and carbon and reducing pollution needs to be first and foremost. There, there will be some sort of processes, whether it's uh, you know, heavy-duty industrial processes um, like manufacturing, that still may need to run on liquid fuel. Uh, and so that's where carbon capture and sequestration comes in. Um, so think about net zero or carbon neutrality as trying to essentially zero out pollution. So the primary focus is reducing the pollution. But then recognizing if we if we continue to need some fuels for our economy, we have to figure out a way to create essentially negative emissions, capture more uh, uh, carbon than we're than we're uh, capturing now. Uh, we're focused on doing as much of the week as we can naturally across our landscapes. Our forests, for example, naturally absorb carbon and release oxygen. So we have a whole sort of natural and working lands plan to sequester as much of our carbon as we can. Um, but then we've talked, we do believe, and our scientists, as ZJ said, do believe that some level of engineered carbon capture is needed. So to acknowledge the caller's point, there will be manufacturing processes that likely continue to need fuel. Um, but, you know, that's going to be 20 years out. We've got technology to minimize the use of fuels, and we have a plan in place uh, or we're working towards, you know, projects that actually will sequester carbon. So we ultimately meet net zero. Yeah. We just have a minute left. So I do want to ask you what was your biggest takeaway from COP that you will take with you in your stewardship of California's natural resources? You know, the world, my takeaway is this. The world is moving in the right direction, but not nearly fast enough. So we in California can show the world um, how uh, it can get done. And if we can do it in the fifth largest economy in the world, um, more economies will move faster. So to me, it just redoubled my, our commitment in California to show the world uh, how we how we can lead on combating climate change. Secretary Wade Crawford of California's Natural Resources Agency, thank you. Thank you very much. And I don't know, Vijay, if you want to just give a final word on well, what's going to be held to account in COP twenty nine, or or a final thought on a reflection on COP twenty eight. We just have thirty seconds. Sure, um, it is easy to be cynical about the UN and about gatherings like this, and um, what I takeaway from this gathering, having been to a number of them, is that it is still worth the fight, right? It is easy to be dismissive and to think nothing can happen or that um, one's efforts don't add up to much. But actually, there are times when we come together, when the challenge is great, that good things can happen. And I think that's a, the lesson for this call. Many, mm -hmm. many, many people came into it with a negative mindset. Um, but in fact, we actually got some very concrete, specific things that we need to follow up on. But nevertheless, this this was a good cop. Good things came out of it. And it is worth fighting the fight. That's the takeaway. DJ Vaiviswaran of The Economist, my thanks to you as well. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing this. Our listeners, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.